Well, this morning we come to the end of our series in the book of James that we have been in for the last few months. I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, which comes to us from James chapter 5, and we'll read beginning at verse 13 all the way to the end. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of our Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Again, we are at the end of of this book of James, which I have uh, at least thrown out there as the overarching theme or way of looking at James, where it's a New Testament wisdom book. I think James does slot in pretty well next to a book like Ecclesiastes or Proverbs, our Old Testament wisdom books, because wisdom, really more than anything, is about taking that right belief and, and living out of it, right? It has to do with right living and right doing. And you have to say that James is all about right doing and right living. This is also a book that we need to categorize as Christian wisdom literature because it's wisdom that looks like Jesus. It's wisdom that sounds like Jesus, oftentimes echoing the very teaching vocabulary that we have from Jesus in the Gospels. And we have to remember that it's also wisdom that is empowered by Christ, by his Holy Spirit. And so what does this wisdom look like? And it's really hard to outline the book of James. I don't think I really can outline the book of James. So let me just suggest this kind of uh, picture for it. Think of like a bulletin board, right? And James is kind of throwing darts of wisdom, uh, naming ideas, naming issues or circumstances in a church that is scattered across the ancient world, right? It's written to the scattered churches, and these are applicable issues where wisdom is needed. I think that's, that's enough. I think, I think we can grasp hold of what James is doing there. And so the wise life for James, think about the last few months. It's a life of true religion, which means doing and not just hearing what the word says. It means thinking about trials and suffering because that has everything to do with everyday life, with real life, with nitty-gritty life as we experience it. Uh, it has to do with the wise life being a patient life, uh, something as mundane and ordinary as how we use our tongues and how we use our speech. Wisdom doesn't look like the world, which is all about showing partiality. No, wisdom relating to one another in Christ is all about impartiality. Wisdom is not living under the illusion that we're in control. And so again, we have these These darts that are being thrown on the board, here are are relevant areas of wisdom that the church in every age, every geographic location, here's what you need. 
And this morning, we conclude with really something that we haven't seen too much of in the book of James, which is why I think it is a little bit disconnected in the way that James organizes this letter. Because now he's going to conclude and basically say the wise life is the praying life. The wise life is the praying life. This is the last main topic James brings up. And so to be wise is to be someone who prays. Godly wisdom is going to be intimately related to a life of prayer. So earlier in the letter we saw if anyone desires wisdom, ask God for it. That's, that's helpful. That's great. So we, we kept that one on the board, didn't we? But now James is going to conclude and say, you know, if you want to live wisely, you have to live in prayerful dependence. And yet most of us have a difficult relationship with prayer. Maybe that's the, the sad irony of, of the church not yet glorified, is that we gather as those people who confess our love for Jesus. We confess that we are living for him and after him. And yet how many of us would say, my prayer life stinks. Why do we have such a difficult time praying? Why is it so hard? I think there are a lot of reasons it's hard. Uh, the last few months in our Sunday night gatherings, I've, I've touched on a couple, I think, key reasons why prayer is hard. And I wasn't talking about prayer with what I was going over. But you could think of things like, well, I don't pray well because I'm distracted, right? Who doesn't think that you're distracted in, in 2022? I think we've always been distracted, but now it's, it's, it's heightened, right? Are any of you tempted to check your phone right now? about something unrelated to worship. That's my phone recording the service, so I'm free from that temptation right now. I can't, I can't do that. First thing you do when you wake up, last thing you do when you go to sleep, how many of you take your phones into the bathroom with you? Don't, no, don't answer that. Don't answer, because I know you do. You don't even need to answer that question. We sit down to pray and our minds drift and wander into countless places. And in fairness, here's the thing. It's not just when we pray that our minds wander. We're constantly having our minds wander no matter what we're doing. We also, to an extent, which I think is unprecedented in history, we really do feel in control of our lives. We do feel in control, right? We pray, give us this day our daily bread. But even in today's inflation, you can go down to the grocery store and you can buy a loaf of bread for a dollar or a dollar fifty. That's liberating, isn't it? That's a lot of control that so many that have lived in this world don't have. Or how about you receive a concerning diagnosis in the doctor's office, and maybe you'd like to think that would just drive you to God's throne of grace, but maybe the first thing you do is you Google the diagnosis and try to figure out what you can do to get a handle on it. Or maybe instead you, you hurry up and set up the second opinion, and then maybe you get to prayer. It reminds me of the story of the captain of a ship who cried out in distress, we need to pray, to which the chaplain responds, are things really that bad? I think this is the hardest thing about prayer. It's acknowledging our lack of control and dependence on God. It's the gravity of sin that pulls us into self-reliance. We live as if we've got this. I'm in control. It's so hard to begin my day with set aside time for prayer when I can just get to work. And I can just do what needs to get done. But James enters the picture and says, well, you can do it that way. But it's not wise. You have to pray. You have to pray in all circumstances. In suffering, you have to pray. In joyful times, and maybe those are the times where it's easiest not to pray, you need to give thanks to God. You need to pray. 
In sickness, you have to pray. So in feast or famine, sickness, health, in hard times and in, hard, and in times of celebration, we have to pray. This is what wisdom in the way of Jesus looks like because out of all of the ways that you could describe and define Jesus, you'd be pretty good by saying that he was a man of prayer. He lived his life in dependence upon his father. So we are to be a people of prayer in every place and every time as God's people. And this is where James will wrap up his letter. And so four points this morning. When I told Mary that I had four points, she said there's going to be a violent revolt with that fourth point. But they're, they're, they're quick points. We'll run through them. Our four points are the principle of prayer, the purpose of prayer, the power of prayer, and the privilege of prayer. And they're all there on the sermon notes page so first of all, the, 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 the first thing we'll look at is the principle of prayer, which is, I'm, I'm getting at this idea of what is the heart of prayer? What is, what is the heart? What is the essence of prayer? And so take a look at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. First of all, what is the will of God for your life? This is pretty good, isn't it? In suffering, pray. Enjoy, pray. When you're sick, call for help. When are we to pray? All circumstances, suffering, joy, sickness, we are to be a people of prayer. I think that's clear enough. But to get to the heart of prayer, I want to take this example of the sick person, because this is the hardest example. This is really where James goes. We want to look at this sick person. This is someone who is seriously sick. Uh, They are bedridden. They they are housebound. And so the elders of the church are to come physically and literally pray over the person for the very simple reason that that person can't come to church. They can't make it to church, so the church comes to them through these elder representatives. And I think James uses this illustration, which you could hopefully say this is a common scene for 2,000 years of church life. We hope this is a very common scene. And he uses this illustration to talk about prayer because it gets to the heart of what is so fundamental about it. What is always true about prayer, what is always true about us, whether we are sick or well, and that simple truth is that we are not in control. We are dependent creatures. We are weak. We are dependent. This is the principle of prayer. We are dependent. That's it. That's the heart of prayer. God is our creator who made us in such a way that we are dependent on him. That is not a flaw in the system. This is not a post-sin reality. God created us in such a way that when we are functioning uh, at our, our optimum best, when we are flourishing, we are living in total dependence on God, our creator. It's not a flaw in the system. We don't graduate. Uh, it's part of our constitution as image bearers of God. It's how we were made. It's good. And then so much of sin, we would say, is living in rejection of that reality. I'm going to choose to live in a way that is not how I was designed to live. You know, we might take a step back and say, well, that's silly, because in reality, you know, even if we say in this time in history, we have a lot of control over our circumstances and what we bring into our lives and all of those things, we still don't have very much control. I don't think you need to be a follower of Jesus to understand that as human beings, we have very little control and we have a whole lot of need. But then why do we act as if these things aren't true? What exposes our dependence in this world more than anything else? And this is where I'm going to take James' illustration here. It's sickness. 
we will face at some point a reminder of our frailty. What the psalmist says, our frame, God knows our frame, and our frame is one that is frail. It's one that does succumb to sickness. I was thinking about this. You know, hospitals have always been filled with angry patients. That's always been true. When I visited Sherry Skoselik a few weeks ago in the hospital after her fall, um, she mentioned just how much of the staff just looked kind of beat up. Uh, she mentioned how much of the staff just looked like they just needed some like, life given back to them. And so she took it on this mission. There she's in her neck brace, taking this mission of trying to cheer everyone up, which, which I thought was really beautiful and a, and a wonderful uh, Christ-like spirit in that place of weakness. Why are hospitals often filled with disgruntled and angry patients? And I understand there are a lot of reasons why. But right at the top, it does not feel good to lose control. It does not feel good in your spirit to all of a sudden be at the mercy of so many peoples and to be confronted with your weakness. And so I hope, right, as, as Christians, we should be at a good starting point when sickness comes over us. Uh, we should know that we are dependent. We should know that we are weak. We should have no illusions about some unending strength and vitality that, that we're clinging to in this life. We know that we're needy. And if we forget that we're needy, you know what that probably means? We're not praying. Because if you're praying, you are confronted with your need. If you are praying, you are confronted with maybe even when it feels like I'm in control, God, I confess to you, uh, that is an illusion. I'm not. I'm not in control. But this also shows us why prayer is hard. Because after the fall entered the world, all of a sudden now we have that gravity of sin. And all of a sudden the message that we are buying into is can I uh, take control? Can I live in an independent way? So one of the primary things that prayer does for us is it decenters us. Prayer decenters us. Prayer is this acknowledgement that God is the one who is working out his purposes in our lives and I am dependent upon him. All right, so the heart of prayer is dependence. Secondly, what is the purpose of prayer? Now we're going to keep exploring what I think is the most challenging passage in this book for sure. Uh, so look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Uh, they will come and pray and anoint with oil. And then the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Again, at the surface level, we, we get a lot of information about how the church should function, don't we? Uh, this, this person is bedridden. The church can't all come and, and, and fit into that person's room, and so elders come as representatives of the whole body. The whole church is praying for this person, but they are represented by the elders who are present. The elders don't have any special power. They don't have any kind of spiritual mojo that they can transplant into the sick person. They are merely coming as representatives of the people, and in many ways, I think, representatives of Christ, being the physical presence of Christ to the person who is sick. Now, why the oil? Again, there's no spiritual mojo with the oil either. It's, it's physical. It's substance, right? We're body and soul as human beings. And so to have this physical, tangible way of saying to the sick person, you are set apart for God's special concern to you. And so the elders are the hands and feet of Jesus. This is God's way of reaching down and saying to that person who is in bed, I am here with you. God is meeting with you he loves you. He cares for you. That's what's going on in this scene. Now, that's all good, right? But then it gets tricky. 
in verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Now, I want to say this. This is more than just a tricky passage, isn't it? It's a scary passage. It raises concerning questions. Is healing dependent on the amount of faith that the praying person has? Is God promising, I will heal that person so long as I find enough faith? I mean, let me ask you, how often have you prayed for someone in this church or maybe in churches past, maybe family members, you have prayed for someone with terminal illness and that healing never came? That cancer was just as advanced as the doctor said it was. And that person died. How many prayers for healing have you prayed and yet no healing came? Did you have enough faith? I mean, this can be devastating. It can be devastating. I think if read in this way, I mean, how how do you not spiral into this kind of downward trajectory of fear and uncertainty. Do I just not have enough faith? Did I, did I lose that person I love because I just didn't believe enough? I don't think so. Because keep reading. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I think we have to say James is saying something more here because why does he keep going? James is doing something more than just asking for for healing of the sickness. The prayer of faith, it doesn't guarantee physical healing. Instead, what will happen is that this person will be saved and raised up. James is looking to the resurrection. That's the hope that's promised to the person that is sick. That's the healing that is needed. Physical healing is not promised each time believers pray in faith. We know this. We have enough counter evidence in the New Testament to know that that's not true. And let me also say this, and I think I've said this before, and, and periodically we need this reminder that we all desire healing. We all desire God to work in miraculous ways. But remember the stories of Jesus in the Gospels. Every recipient of a miracle of Jesus still died. Do we say that enough? Jairus' daughter still died at some point. You ever feel bad for Lazarus? Poor guy had to die twice. They and we still needed something better. Jesus is giving this sneak preview of his kingdom where he says, when my kingdom is established and full, death is gone. And so here's this preview of that reality. But they and we still need a better healing, don't we? No, instead, James is promising spiritual salvation to any who come. Any who come before the elders and in weakness and faith ask for prayer, acknowledge their dependence and need. And often, this person will be healed. God works in our midst. He does heal people. But at the very least, the elders can stand over that person and say, you will be raised. You will be healed. This is not the end of your story, regardless of what happens. It's more than physical. It's forgiveness and new life. Now, what does this have to do with the purpose of prayer? Because that's my point here. How do we get the purpose of prayer? Well, James moves to to confessing your sins, to being healed, to being forgiven. And so the purpose of prayer for the sick person is not to gain healing. That might happen, and it's wonderful when it happens. But the purpose is to know God, not only as your creator on whom you are dependent, but as your savior who will raise you 
in Christ on the last day. The purpose is to, is, to, is to know God and be transformed by God. In your sickness, weakness, suffering, to know not just that you are dependent on God, but as you confess your sin that you are saved by him. Even if you succumb to your illness, Christian, you will be saved. You will be healed. Your body raised in him. James moves from sickness to confession to forgiveness because the sickness that we all need healing from is our sin. This is our ultimate sickness, and it's in the resurrection that all those in Jesus will be completely healed, bodies and souls, and this is the hope of the gospel. In one of the greatest sentences that anticipated Jesus coming, Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and what? By his wounds, we are healed. We are healed. Christ was mortally wounded on the cross so that we would be healed. The principle of prayer is dependence. The purpose of prayer is is to know and be transformed by God, your Savior. Third, we see in James 5, the power of prayer. So pick up at the second part of verse 16, the, the latter half of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. All right, so James is saying here that prayer is powerful. It does bring change. It transforms the world. God responds to our prayers, and God acts, and God does things. He changes things. This is an important point, because on the one hand, we want to maintain that the purpose of prayer is to be known and transformed by God, right? We want to hold that and and affirm that. On the other hand, we want to say, God uses our prayers, He does things through them. This is something we have to grasp as followers of Jesus. I might say maybe especially as Presbyterians, we need to grasp this too often. We're just too comfortable saying prayer is mainly God kind of working on my heart, which is true. It's a means of grace. But also, God uses our prayers as means. Right? God feeds the earth with what? Rain. Does God need to have rain fall in order to preserve this world? Well, of course, not even need to, but he uses means. In, the, in a similar way, with much more mystery involved, in a similar way, God uses our prayers as means of his action. We have to grasp this. God uses this. He uses prayers to accomplish his purposes. And so what's the example James says? He, look at Isaiah, Elijah. Elijah, the prophet. Why? It's not that Elijah was some super believer, which he kind of was, but the point James is making is that he's a human being. He's like us. He shares our nature. And so he mentions this story from 1 Kings 17 and 18. Elijah, the prophet, he's kind of embattled against Ahab, the wicked king of Israel. And so Elijah prays for drought as a kind of chastisement, a judgment against Ahab, and you have a drought for three and a half years. And then God says, go, go ahead and let's end the drought. It's going it's to start raining again. And so Elijah prays for rain, and rain comes. But it's a humorous scene from 1 Kings 18. Because basically you have Elijah who prays for rain to come, and he has a servant with him. And he sends the servant to the top of the mountain, and he prays for rain. And he says to his servant, all right, you see rain clouds yet? And the servant goes, no, no, clear skies. 
Then Elijah prays again, and the servant still says, nothing's coming. And Elijah prays again, and again, and again, and again. And on the seventh time Elijah prays, the servant goes, we're good. Rain clouds are coming. It's a humorous scene, but maybe that also teaches us something about prayer, doesn't it? Elijah has to keep praying and keep praying. But the point is that Elijah prays and God uses his prayers to bring rain. Prayer transforms the world in powerful ways. Do you believe that? Maybe not always. But James says, believe it. Prayer is one way, maybe it's the best way, that we see God at work in our lives. It's as if through prayer we're saying, God, I'm paying attention. I'm paying attention to what you're doing. Maybe you don't think prayer really matters. That God will do what he's going to do regardless. But James says, no, the prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. God uses our prayers to bring change in the life of this this very community of CPC, if we're looking. He really uses prayer to change things in our life and and to show us that he loves us and cares for us. There's so many times, I think, where you can look back through your life and say, you know, these are all of those times that God is throwing us a bone saying, I'm right here with you. Are you looking? We will often say that I prayed and nothing happened. I'm sure that many of us have been there. I'm sure some of you right now are are, are thinking, I'm praying all the time and I am seeing zero results. But remember Elijah's example. When he he prayed that third and fourth time, I'm sure hope was beginning to fade. We don't know what God is doing. We don't know God's timing God doesn't always give us what we ask for. Why? Because he's a good father who knows better what we need. I love my kids. I don't think I'm a great father, but I sure love my kids. I want good things for them. I I want them to enjoy life. I think God has given us a a, a world to enjoy uh, his, his good gifts to us. But I don't want them to enjoy life more than I want what is best for them according to my understanding of what is best for them. I want them to have character. I want them to be kind and generous. I want them to love Jesus. And what this means is sometimes I absolutely give them the nice things they want, but also sometimes I withhold what they want when I think that interferes with what is best for them, according to my fallible understanding of what is best for them. I think that's just a picture of our infallible God who is at work in our lives. I heard a quote at some point somewhere that said something like, God always gives us what we would have asked for if we knew what he knew. I think that's right. So our prayers do matter. God uses them. Prayer is not some just kind of motion that we go through, some silly exercise that doesn't make any difference. No, God works through the means of our prayers. Our prayers do something, but there is a catch James also tells us, you know, it's not everyone's prayers who are powerful. Um, I don't know if you've seen these billboards. They're all over the place, and I didn't know it was here, but I noticed it on the way to church this morning, just before I come, I come from the north, so I'm I'm getting off at Winchester, and there is a billboard, again, they're all over, that says prayer changes things. Have you seen these billboards, these orange billboards? Prayer changes things. Um, I'm not, you know, I don't like billboards anyway. I don't like theology on billboards even, you know, even less, right? But James says something here that should give us a little bit of pause. It's the prayers of the righteous that are powerful. And this leads us to our fourth point, our last point, which is this privilege of prayer. 
And my concern is, you know, telling the general population they need to pray, I don't think that builds up anyone's confidence that prayer actually works. On the one hand, Elijah is this example we have of a normal guy, but let's get real, he's a righteous man. And only a righteous person will have this impact. I want you to think of a, of, a, of a king from like a bygone era who has authority in his kingdom, right? At the snap of his fingers, he can, he can have you and your family done away with. What he says goes. Nobody in that situation just walks right into the throne room and starts demanding things from that king, right? How much more so the king of all creation? Because not only are we inferior to God, our king, who is superior, we're also sinners. We're also rebels in that kingdom who want to live according to a different king, who who want a different kingdom. We would love for that king so often to be removed from his throne. And that's that's, that's who we're, we're barging into his throne room and saying, here are the demands that I have. Who are we to make requests of God? We're all unrighteous. No one is righteous. How, how can we be heard? And of course, James gives us a clue because this is Christian wisdom. We pray in the name of the Lord. And the Lord, of course, is, is almost certainly the Lord Jesus. To pray in the name of the Lord is to pray in line with the person of Jesus on the basis of what he has done. He is the righteous one who prayed in all circumstances. He is the righteous one who lived in communion and dependence on God. He is the one who is faithful in all that he did. Jesus surrendered to the Father, even all the way to the cross, where the Father did not answer the prayers of the righteous one. He went abandoned and ignored, and though he was the faithful son, he bore the curse for our sins. The sins of unfaithful rebels, the sins of the unrighteous. Jesus was not saved, he was condemned to death. But God vindicated his son three days later, he was raised from the dead. He was indeed the righteous one. If you believe in Christ, his righteousness belongs to you as a gift of grace. And on this basis, you can pray and know with confidence that your prayers are heard. Only on this basis. The privilege of prayer is grabbing a fistful of Jesus' righteous robes and entering boldly into God's throne room. That's the privilege that you and I have in Christ. If you put your trust in Christ to be your righteousness, know that you can pray with confidence, not because you are righteous in and of yourself or because you have had a good enough week. It is that you are righteous through faith in the one who was righteous for you. If this isn't you, would your first prayer be to confess your need of Jesus and his righteousness? Because you can't cut it. I can't cut it. None of us can cut it. So as we wrap up this morning, where do we go from here, right? Where do we go as a, as a room of, of, of struggling prayers? If the wise life is the praying life, it means that we need more than a theology of prayer. It means that we need more than just kind of paying lip service to prayer. What does it mean? It means you have to pray. You have to do it. 
You have to know that you are invited into a life of prayer that rests in that work of another Jesus, that you have been invited to a front row seat in your life to see the God of all creation work. You just have to pray. You need to recognize that you can go boldly to the Father in prayer. No matter how you performed recently, you do not qualify yourself. If you feel like you have messed up, what a wonderful grace we have in repentance. Be quick to repent and turn to Jesus. Come back to God. Let me wrap up with just a few practical tips that I can just kind of um, shoehorn in here at the end to to help us think about praying better. The the first one is it's helpful to plan to pray and to schedule prayer. How many of you struggle with prayer because your minds wander? Let me give you this tip if your minds wander. Wherever your mind goes, pray about it. Pray about it. Instead of that mind wandering being an interruption to your prayer life, isn't that just where your prayers are leading? And so you think about a work report. You pray for that work report. You think of the game you watched last night. It's a good prayer to say, Lord, do I have an unhealthy relationship to entertainment? That's okay. Confess that to God. You're thinking about your kids and everything needing to, to happen there. What a wonderful opportunity to pray for them. Wherever your minds wander, take them there. That's fine. Go there. Don't be discouraged. Learn and pray the Psalms. That's my second tip. God gave us a prayer script in, in, in the Bible. Pray the Psalms. Take every line from a Psalm and personalize it. If you say, I just don't know what to pray, God says, like, here, here. Pray this. Pray the Psalms. Make those prayers your prayers. Pray why it's hard to pray certain prayers in the Psalms. Try and find others to pray with. Ask for prayer so that you can become weak enough to pray. Let me ask you this question. How many of you struggle with prayer where you would say, I'm just not very good at it? And let me give a challenge to you if you don't think you are very good at praying. There are people in this church who are good at praying. And my challenge to you is to come up to, to one of the officers of the church. It's to come to someone that you've heard pray and, and, to, and to go to that person and say, teach me to pray. Doesn't that sound like what the church should be? There's no excuses unless it's folly to say I'm perfectly content that I'm embarrassed that I don't know how to pray. No, you have a church that comes alongside of you and says, let's teach you to pray. Let's become prayers together. Develop an instinct of praying prayers throughout the day, right? Paul admonishes us to pray without ceasing, which doesn't mean that we never stop praying. It means that we become people who just live this natural life of exhaling prayers back to God. And in the end, a praying life is a wise life that confesses its need for Jesus and seeks to walk in the footsteps of Jesus clinging to his righteousness. What a privilege it is to be called to pray. Let me, uh, let me pray for us as we, as we wrap up here. Lord, I, I, I'm grateful in many ways for maybe this, this novel angle, of, of this newer angle of how we can look at, at prayer uh, as, as this kind of key to wisdom. Uh, which one of us here doesn't want wisdom? Uh, which one of us here doesn't want to be able to live well and to live faithfully And what just a beautiful angle you've given us in your word to think of of the wise life as a life that is so dependent upon you, God our creator. 
Lord, that you are working your, your purposes out in us. And, and so, Lord, would that give us such hope and encouragement to, to come to you as, as we come to know you, as, as we come to be transformed by you, knowing that you will, you will finish the work that you have begun in each of your, of your children. Lord, would you do that? Lord, we pray that, that you would help us to grasp by faith, to believe that you are at work through our prayers and that our prayers matter. There's, there's a, a word of the enemy that says, A, you don't listen to our prayers because we could never be good enough to which we own. And we say, you bet I could never be righteous enough to pray, but there's one who was. And I pray in his name. And God, I'm confident that you are at work just as you have promised to be. And Lord, we are reminded also of the privilege of grabbing hold of the coattails of our elder brother Jesus who leads us right into the throne room of the king who is our father. Lord, help us to grasp these these realities. Help us to grasp these identities. Lord, by your spirit, create in us a a people who pray, who cry out to you, um, knowing you are a a God of, of of loving kindness, of faithfulness, who works through our prayers, who longs to to hear our prayers more than we desire to even bring the petitions to you. Lord, what grace, what privilege. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.